0: evening treating you? Pretty good, pretty good, pretty yeah? Well, it's sunny today. Good day for riding. Did you go riding today, Noe? No? Ah, okay. Everything all right? All right. Okay, we're going to be in Isaiah 12. So if you've got your Bibles, flip open Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 wraps up. Basically, the section that began, remember when we started the book of Isaiah, we laid out for you that the, you have, the whole concept is, is kind of laid out for us the first six chapters. Isaiah is going to talk about all the, all the issues, the problems, things that separate people from God, what God's looking for from His people. So the first five chapters start with, whoa, 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 right? Woe to everybody else. And you have this, this picture painted of how we are and how God wants us to be. and there's a, there's a gap between those two things. And the natural question for us to ask is, well, how do I get from there to there? How does this, this Israel become that Israel? How does this Jackie become that Jackie? How do we get to the place where our lives are in the, in the place they need to be with God? And that Isaiah chapter 6 tells us, right? In the year that King Uzziah died what happened to Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? His train filled the temple. He comes face to face with God. What's the first thing Isaiah says? "Woe, woe is me," right? Not "Woe is somebody else," "Woe is me." So I recognize I'm not the Isaiah is saying, "I'm not the Isaiah, I should be either." So what God does is he takes a coal from the altar and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, your sins are purged. Which is a picture. How does this is Isaiah become that one? God has to forgive him of his sins. How is that going to happen? The rest of the book of Isaiah is going to tell us. So we remember when we finished chapter 6, we went to chapter 7, which told us about a child king who was coming, right? Unto us a, a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right, The idea of the government being on his shoulders... (laughs) These pictures that speak to or look to a coming king one day, a king that's going to come and be able to straighten out the nation. And so you have this picture of a of a nation now that won't trust God, doesn't trust him, runs other places for their salvation. Right. But you have God saying, why do you go there? Why don't you come to me? You're running to Egypt, you're running to Assyria, you're running to Babylon, you're running to someone else to deliver you from your problems, but you're not coming to me. So God calling his people to come unto him, and stating that the day was coming when the nation would, under his rule, find perfect peace. Remember last week we looked at Isaiah 11, the wolf lying down with the lamb, you guys remember? That perfect uh, creation, creation... Uh, lifted to the place where where it uh, would naturally be under god 's rule, <clears throat> not under like Romans chapter eight tells us Romans chapter eight says that all of creation is groaning right can 't wait until the redemption of the of the sons of God until the redemption of of the children of God when that redemption happens, the creation knows that they 'll be restored that That the earth will be restored. Read the end of the book of Revelation. What does God give us? A new heaven and a new earth, right? All perfected. All set right. So we know, Genesis, we begin, it all kind of tumbles out of control. Fall of man, corruption of man, rebellion of man. Then from Genesis to Revelation, you have God's redemption of man. How God does the work of redemption, redeeming fallen man, that man, this broken man, that can be this man over here in a right relationship with God, but something has to happen in the middle. Isaiah 6 said that God was going to have to find a way to forgive our sins. Hopefully we'll see a little picture of that tonight in chapter 12. What is that going to look like? Obviously the event that scripture is pointing to is the cross. The event, the culminating event on the plan of God is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where that deed is accomplished. And we're going to see some of that foreshadowing tonight when we look in chapter 12. So the first, uh, as we get to from 7 to 11, we have this idea. God calling His people, saying, trust in me. Now that's still happening today, because still there are people today who think they can forgive their own sins, right? Who can make their lives good enough. If I'm good enough, then then God will accept me based on my own merit. But that's not what Scripture teaches all the way through. That's not what we see. So God is saying or trying to get the people to recognize the fact that He is trustworthy, He is able, and He's the one in whom we have to place our faith, our trust. That's where the work is going to be accomplished, right? Did Isaiah purge his own sin? No, God did, right? So we just like Isaiah, we have to come to our moment before God where we say, woe is me, Lord. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me, right? This is the idea that we're coming to. So <clears throat> Isaiah 12 is a song of trust. And it is a, a prophecy laid out by Isaiah where he is looking forward to the song the people will sing after they have their Isaiah 6 moment with God. After they recognize that God is their salvation. They're going to sing this song, a song of trust, a song of hope for the Lord. So let's take a look. We'll look, begin here in the... Wow, take me a long time to get through the first two verses, so that's how far. We'll get six, I promise you will say in that day i will give thanks to the to you o lord for though you were angry with me your anger turned away that you might comfort me behold god is my salvation i will trust and will not be afraid for the lord god is my strength and my song and has become my salvation so this <coughs> this statement of where the people have come in these first two verses. so what we understand in it right out the gate. Is that judgment is never God's final word. Judgment was never intended to be God's final word for Israel. Judgment was never intended to be God's final word for us. Judgment is a tool. A parent's, a parent's tool. A similarity to a parent's tool of correction. Right When a parent corrects their child. The, the end result is not just the correction. That's not the goal. What's the goal? The goal is a uh, change life, no? If we have a little one who constantly is running out into the street and we spank them or we discipline them in some way, our goal is not just to get to spank them, right? Nobody likes that part. What do we want? We want them not to run in the street, right? We want to change behavior. We want to see, we want to see behavior change so that a, 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 the child who doesn't know better will listen to the one who does. Yeah? Now here's where the struggle happens, because you and I don't always think God knows better. Do we? We often ask questions like, why did God do this? Which is just a little crazy, you know? (laughs) In our understanding, we have a concept for infinity, but we don't really understand infinity, do we? I mean, we we do crazy things like saying, say, can you add one to infinity? Well, we'll say, sure. Well, how can you? Infinity is infinity. There's no such thing as infinity plus one. It's either infinite or it's not. It's either eternal or it's not. God is eternal. God is infinite. You and I are finite. So which of us knows everything there is to know? We were talking about that earlier. I at least don't know one thing, right? That's the deal? As long as I don't know one thing, I'm not a know-it-all. So do we have infinite knowledge? Well, no, we know we don't have infinite knowledge. But Scripture teaches us that God does have infinite knowledge. So is it possible in what we don't know, but what we think we know, that God knows more than we know? And when we look at a circumstance and we say, God, how could you do that... That we are elevating our finite understanding above God's infinite knowledge? Doesn't that just seem a little arrogant? Like our three-year-old telling us, I don't need to hold your hand, Dad, I got this. I got this. I remember my son, and me and my, my son, probably about three years old, we'd go to the beach all the time. And we'd be out in the waves, and I'd just like to keep my hands on them because... Wouldn't take very long for a wave to suck him out, right? You guys ever been to the beach? <coughs> so walking with him, I don't need your hand, Dad. I don't need your hand, Ned. So I, I taught him one day, he needed my hand. How'd I teach him? I let him go. And the first wave that he was pretty sure he could handle slurped him up. Feet come up out of the wave, head tumbles. He's pretty sure he's gonna perish. He's drowning in the wave. And a second later, dad's got him, and I'm saying, you still need me. You still need me, because what you think you know, that three-year-old, what you think you know is not what I know. Now that gap between a three-year-old's knowledge and my knowledge as his father is infinitely smaller than the gap between me and an infinite, almighty, all-powerful God. Yes or no? And if it is, then that God, that being who is infinite and and com, has complete and total knowledge, nothing has escaped his, his understanding, he knows more than I do. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah 55 when God says, my ways are above your ways? I know more than you do, so trust me, I know what I'm doing. But we have a problem, we question, just like Israel is questioning and saying, well, God, our enemies are coming, and it looks like if I, if I get my neighbor's help, I can handle them myself. I won't need you. And God is saying, trust me, your neighbor's not going to help you like I can. You need to trust me. Here the song is, is sung. I give thanks to the Lord for <clears throat> you were angry. You were angry with me, but God's anger does not last forever. Look what he says. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And then the next line, Behold, God is my salvation. Now this is where God wants His people to get to. The comprehension that He is our salvation. He's the one I need. He's the, the one in whose hand I need to get my hand. He's the one who is able to save, not anybody else. And if we look at Scripture, we'll see that this is God's call. In Isaiah 8, 12 and 13, he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The Lord of hosts, him you should honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, going to him, looking to him, not toward all these troubles. Isaiah 31, 1. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt. For help they rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many or in horsemen because they are strong. But they don't look to the Holy One of Israel nor consult the Lord. <clears throat> God wants us to understand I'm the salvation. You are. There's no salvation in any other name. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? This is God's call. He's, he's, he wants this to be something that comes through. In Isaiah 33, verse 17, it says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar, and your heart will muse on terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will no more see the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you can't comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you don't understand. Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem as an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for for us a place of broad rivers and streams, or no galleys, With oars can go, no majestic ships can pass. Why? For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. What's the last phrase? He will save us. He will save us. See, right now they're worried, they're paying tribute and taxes to all these other people who have authority over them. And God says, when when the king comes, when this kingdom is established, you're going to look to that and say, why were we so worried about this stuff? Look at the king in his glory sitting on his throne. All these other things are going to fade away. All the things. I just think now I'm, I'm 50 something. I, Kathy's not here. I can't ask her. I think 54. No, I don't think so. I was born in 64. What year is this? There you go. Okay, so I'm 54. I've got to do math every time. I'm 54 years old, but I can tell you this. The things I was afraid of in my 20s, I'm not afraid of today. My worries and concerns in my 20s have changed. Now, I'm not saying I don't have worries and concerns. I have. They're just different now, right? But what I learned from that process is those things that took all my time and all my worry back then turned out not to be the end of me, right? And so when I look at the worries and concerns for today, I... I want to see them in the same light. I want to see them in the light of the God I serve. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. I don't have to be afraid of all this other stuff when Jesus is my King. When He's the one who saves. Then I just trust Him. And what comes, comes. The, the storm comes, the waves come, the water comes. What, it, it is what it is. But when it's all said and done, I'll, I will remain. Because I belong to Him. My days are in His hands, right? My days are in His hands. In Isaiah 40, you guys are familiar with a couple of verses in Isaiah 40, but you might not have the, the context of those verses It's helpful to kind <clears> of <throat> see a little bit bigger picture. In Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 12, he's asking these questions, and he's amplifying the beauty, the majesty, the power of God. Listen, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Well, who has done that? The one who created it all, right? It's being described as the, the waters of the earth was in the hollow of his hand, you know, like he poured it out. The, 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 the measure and the majesty of God Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Who's going to teach God something? A lot of us think we need to, right? Because God's not doing things right, at least not according to our plans. (laughs) Who's going to teach God? Whom did God consult? Who is it that made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? Do you ever stop to think where your idea of morality comes from anyway? Where do you think that came from? You really think that's something you learned? The Bible would say that's something God put in you. And one day the Bible says Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. Now the rod of iron is not this picture he's going to have a rod and he's going to beat you with a rod of iron. That's not the picture. The picture is a rod of iron doesn't bend. Our justice bends today. Right? Well, justice isn't straight across, is it? If you're poor, you get less, right? If you're rich, you get more. Maybe. I know if you're poor and you can't afford a good lawyer, you're, you go to jail for something that maybe you're not guilty of, right? Or we've never heard of that before. <laughs> I was just reading a couple of months ago about a guy who, who got out of college, was looking for a career in the NFL. A woman accused him of rape. And he went to jail for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, she came forward and said, yeah, he didn't do it. It Is justice justice like a rod of iron? That's why I remember last time in Isaiah 11, God said that the king, Jesus the king, he's not going to judge by his eyes or his ears. Because every time I hear somebody talk, do you always know when somebody's lying? The only time I know for sure when somebody's lying is if I'm listening to a politician. I'm pretty sure, I don't know what was a lie, I'm just pretty sure somewhere in there, somewhere in what they just said was a lie, a stretching, an exaggeration, something, right? But the idea is that God's not going to judge by his eyes what he sees, what he hears, because he knows the truth. He is the truth. So God will judge with a rod of iron. Justice will be justice, period. If you're guilty, God knows you're guilty. There's no getting out of being guilty, right? If you're innocent, you're innocent. God knows you're innocent. There's no worry about whether or not someone's going to charge you with something you're not guilty of. So he has this perfect path of justice. Verse 15 Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted like dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing in emptiness. What are the nations going to do? Revelation 19, you read about it. Gog and Magog gathered for the final battle. Then The the, the armies of the Antichrist gathered together to wipe out the, the nation of Israel. And at that moment, Jesus Christ returns The Antichrist turns all his armies toward the returning Christ, and how long does that battle last? How many soldiers die in that process? The Bible says Jesus is going to open his mouth, he's going to slay them with the sword of his mouth. Because the one in whom all things consist, the one who holds all things together, all he has to do is stop holding you together. Jesus doesn't need our help, right? We're not going to need to brandish a sword or pull a gun. Jesus has got it. That battle will be won by him and him alone. It says in verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? How will you compare him? To an idol? A craftsman casts it. The goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it with silver chains. He was too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing... Makes the rulers of the earth like emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off to stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Now God speaking. Who will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes on high and see who created this. Who made these He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So he says, you say, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, where are you? You don't see this. You don't see that. And God says, what are you talking about? I made it all. I created it all. I put it all together. I don't faint. I don't grow weary. And my understanding is unsearchable. I know more than you. I know more than you. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Here's the part you should recognize, right? Even you shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. What's the key? God saying, put your trust in me, and you're going to make it. You will not be wearied by the footmen. You will not be worn out with the horsemen. You'll be ready for the battle. But it's you and me. Your trust has to be in me, not in something else. Not in another system. Not in another way. Not in another plan. Well, just prior to this decree, Behold, the Lord God, He's our salvation... The people singing in Isaiah 12 said, You were angry, but but now you're comforting us. Why? What caused the shift? You were angry because we're this Israel. You're angry because I'm this Jackie. Now you want me to be that Jackie, but I'm this one. And now you're comforting me. How did I get from here to there? What, what's missing? It's a question that, that happens throughout the Old Testament. And there's a few clues that we want to look at. In Leviticus 17.11, it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. We've heard that before, right? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. So way back in Leviticus, God said it's blood. If man sheds man blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Blood makes atonement. Blood brings atonement in Hebrews 9:22 He says indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin right So it is the shedding of blood that brings the forgiveness of sin Micah the prophet looking at this same idea this Israel that Israel we're not there you're not angry at us now but how do we get from A to B how does this thing happen? <clears throat> so in Micah 6, verse 6, he asks a question. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God? How do, I, how do I come to you, Lord? How do I come to you? He says, shall I come with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the body for the sin of my soul? These are the questions that people are asking. God, how how do we get from here to there? What do I got to pay? What do I got to give? What do I got to do? But it's Isaiah who gives us the answer. How do we get from here to there? For God so loved the world that He... Gave his only begotten Son, his one and only unique Son, that whosoever believes in him would what? <clears throat> Not perish, but have everlasting life. How does it that Isaiah said it? In Isaiah 53 verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring... He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who is it that pays that price, who makes that blood sacrifice, who turns God's anger from that Isaiah, from that Israel, from that Jackie, so that I can become the one that God sees? Jesus Christ does, his son. All the way back in Isaiah 7, he said, Remember, for unto you a child is born unto you, a son is given. There's a child coming who's going to take it away. Who, like Isaiah in chapter 6, <clears throat> he's going to purge your sin. He's going to equip you so that while you are this way, you can become that way. As you put your faith and trust in him, walking and in following him. For behold, he said, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. Nobody else. Nobody else. The children of Israel were trying to make lots of plans. Still today, people in regard to salvation are making lots of plans. If I live like this, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then I'm earning something from God where, whereby he will. He will do this thing when, when what has been offered is a free gift. It's a gift that must be received. But are we running to Egypt? Are we running to Assyria? In Isaiah 30, verse 1, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but it's not mine, who make an alliance, but not by my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. How many times, the nation of Israel was certainly guilty of this. How many times have we? I I got my own plan. I got my own way. I got my own ideas. God doesn't really know what he's doing. He needs my help. Just like a three-year-old walking through the surf, right? I don't need your hand, Dad. I got this. In Isaiah 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong but do not look to the holy one of Israel or consult the lord god's call i'm salvation it's not it's not i give you salvation he is salvation he is that's we we have to go to him for what he has hosea 5:13 when Ephraim saw a sickness in Judah's wound. Um, Ephraim ran to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. Why are you running to some place that can't satisfy? In Isaiah 55, Isaiah asks the same question. Why do you take your money and buy bread that won't satisfy? Why are you striving and working for things that are not going to get you what you want? God's call is, He is the one. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one that brings ultimate satisfaction. Behold, in verse 2 of Isaiah 12, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. They've made that choice, right? I'll trust. i put my faith in Him. For the Lord God is my strength and my song And he has become my salvation. It's faith in God who is our salvation. Who delivers us from all the things we're afraid of. It's faith in him that accomplishes. Now in verse 3 he goes on. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you're going to draw water. Isaiah says that he causes water to flow in the desert places, right? He will cause up living water to spring up within your soul. Like you and I, were a parched desert. Like Israel, right? A land that didn't have a lot of water, so they had to trust God for water. Right? We remember the stories, don't we? Think about Abraham, told by God that the son of promise <coughs> was not Ishmael, was Isaac. So God said to Abraham, I'll take care of your son, give him to me. So he sends his son out into the desert with one skin of water. And it's not very long down that road before he runs out of water, right? And then he starts to run out of strength. His mother is with him and she doesn't want to watch him die. So she lays him down under a bush and she lays down to die in the desert. And then she names the place El Leroy. The idea is the one who sees, the God who sees. Because in that place, God comes to her. God, Jesus Christ, shows up and does what? Gives her water. What's that a picture of? That's not a picture of salvation? It's not a picture of salvation when God brings water to a parched land and pours out living water. You re- wasn't she filled with joy? Didn't God say, I've got Ishmael, I'll take care of him. I'll make him a mighty nation. Twelve nations or twelve princes are going to come forth from him. God's got him. But Abraham couldn't be his savior, right? God needed to be his savior. God needed to be. And so God was that for Ishmael. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. The whole world needs to know that God is salvation. The picture, the whole world needs water. You go to Africa, you know what their biggest problem is? They don't got no water. They don't have no wells. The people that live out in the prairies, out in the, it's not really jungle, at least not in Nigeria, maybe in the jungle in Malawi, they don't have water. And the water they have is all polluted because they throw all their trash in the river. And so when it rains, it's all full of oil and muck and garbage and trash. They need water. They put three wells in Malawi and turned the people loose, and now they can walk over, grab a pump, pump it, and they've got fresh water anytime they need it. <coughs> Jesus said, I am living water, I'm what you need. I'm I'm that which will sustain your life. Look at verse 4. He will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among all the peoples. Look, God's goal in calling the nation of Israel was never just to save the nation of Israel. God's goal was to make the nation of Israel a light so that His glory would be proclaimed to all the nations, to the Goyim, to all the peoples. That's exactly what he's saying here. Hey, tell them all. The point is, when Israel learns that God is their salvation, and they find salvation in him, then God says, now, spread that. Tell them all, so they'll come to me for living water. Any of you who thirst. Isn't that what Jesus said? He was not only calling Jews, was he? How many times in the Gospels does Jesus read into a Gentile that he says, I have not seen faith like yours in all of Israel. Over and over and over. After Jesus dies, buries, and is raised again, you have the the 11 disciples that are left, all Jewish, and then the next thing you see is Peter going up on a roof to get away, and he has a vision, right? You remember? Peter arise, kill, and eat. Peter would say, "Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. I've never touched that stuff." And God said, "What I have cleansed, callest not unclean." And he had the dream again, and he had the dream again. And then God say, "I'm sending somebody to you, Peter. Go with them." So who shows up? Cornelius' people. And they get Peter and they take him to Cornelius. And he says, "Cornelius says, I got to know about this God. I got to know about this God. I feel." The, the, the truth and the power behind this message. And Peter doesn't even get to the end of the message. Peter just starts. He just starts preaching. And the Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his people. They get saved and begin to speak in tongues. Right then, before he's done with the message, before he did an altar call, before they were baptized, before any of those things happened, God saved Cornelius and the guys that were gathered there. And Peter said, Who can deny that they should be baptized? Because the Spirit came on them just like He came on us. When the light of salvation dawned, that light is designed not to be hidden under a bush, or under your bed, or in your closet, but what? Put it on a hill. So that all the peoples can see. This is what Isaiah is proclaiming. Proclaim that His name (coughs) is exalted. Proclaim that his name is exalted. He says, with joy, you, that word you is, is plural. So he's talking about the nation that has come to God. Drawing water, showing the people, giving thanks to the Lord, calling on his name, making his deeds known so everybody knows him. Proclaiming his name, exalting him. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw All men to Myself. What's being described here, if it's not that? Exalting His name, lifting up His deeds, so that all the world can hear. Basically, what water is to dry and parched earth, God is to those who are caught in their bondage to sin. If you want to get from there to there, there's only one way to do it. You do it through God, which is through Jesus Christ, the gift he gave. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, our Lord, (coughs) our great God and Savior. He's the one. This is what Isaiah is talking about. He's the one who's going to get you from A to B so that you can sing the song that I have trusted in God. He is my salvation. Verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Who's got to be central? Am I the center of my story? No, I'm not the center of the universe neither. For some of us, this is earth shattering, right? Because we're pretty sure that the world revolves around us. But the reality is, what the Word of God teaches us is the world revolves around Jesus Christ. Who's great when he's central? Jesus is. If I'm central, who's great? Probably nobody. Right? Where is it that our focus is supposed to be? Where is our eyes on? Remember when we started at the beginning, I said we have this problem where we think we know more than God does. We look at all the things happening around the world and because we don't understand it, we assume God doesn't know what he's doing. Because we're pretty sure that that should have never happened. That this event should have never happened. That that thing should have never happened to those people. Those people should never have had to suffer like that. This shouldn't have been like that. That shouldn't have been like this. And we're walking around with our finite minds complaining to the God who has infinite knowledge as though he doesn't know what he's doing. And when we do that, we have elevated ourselves to judge. We've put God in the docks and we are now judging God. And just so you know, nowhere in the Bible is God judged by us. But there is another part, right? Where God does the judging. Isn't there? He knows. And his call for us is to trust him, to put our hope in him, to make him central. To make Him central of our lives. To make Him central of our family. To make Him central in our social lives. To make Him central in who we are and what we do. And when we do that, there is power. And there is strength. And there is endurance. And there is the idea that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, right? We don't run out of gas because Jesus is in our midst. I run out of gas when I'm running on Jackie juice. I don't have a lot of juice. (laughs) No, even when I'm drinking Monsters, I don't have a lot of juice. I need to have Jesus Christ as that source of energy in my life. The source. He's the battery. He's the power behind the magnet. His spirit is what equips us to be who we need to be. And he's the one who saves from our enemy. He's the one who saves from our circumstances, our problems in our health, our issues in our life. He's the one who saves. For um, ever since man's been on earth, he's been shaking his fist at God, that God doesn't know what he's doing. And all the while, I, I, I have such a hard time understanding, comprehending where that comes from. I don't, I don't even know how I got here. We've been arguing over the how the earth came to be for a long time, right? Yeah? Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Pretty much all science agrees on that. Did the universe have a beginning? Yeah, what do they call it? The Big Bang, right? And it began. And Richard Dawkins, I watched Richard Dawkins, this incredible, brilliant man, standing in front of a panel of people. I watched the video. You're welcome. I'll, I'll be happy to give it to you. I watched the video where he said, The greatest miracle of our origin is that something came from nothing. Burp, 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 burp. What was that? That's science? That sounds like what I would say. Something came from nothing, yeah, but I had to start with someone. <clears throat> because everything that has a beginning has a cause, but God didn't have a beginning. He's eternal. There's no cause. He's outside. The uncause cause. But we got it all figured out, right? We're brilliant. Everybody will tell you how smart he is. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. Can you get something from nothing today? Let's try. I got nothing in my checkbook. (coughs) I'm going to write you a check for nothing. What can I buy? No, come on. Remember the miracle of the beginning, the origin. I'll write you a check for nothing, and you give me everything. Well, that doesn't work in the world today, does it? It doesn't. So once you take God out of the equation, you are only left with one thing. Crazy. If God's in, then it all makes sense. Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time when we can look at your word, we can look at this song, the song of trust, of the people putting their faith in you, recognizing that you, Lord God, are their salvation. You are my salvation. You are our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who made me is the one who knows what I need. The one who has made the universe and everything that is in it is the one who knows where we are going and has the mind, the path, the way that leads to salvation. You can get me from A to B because you are salvation. Lord, I pray that we would learn to put our faith in trust in you, Lord God, for indeed you are worthy to be praised. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.